Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 147. Well, just ahead, Bumble shares. Give us the hard facts on just how much love was lost during the pandemic. And why a struggling insurance company, and I mean struggling, says it has no plans to change its strategy moving forward and how to take a company public, merge with another company, and do it all using a SPAC amidst giant cybersecurity disruptions all at once? Zero Fox CEO James Foster Foster will give us that story, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the drill down. You ready for this, Isaac? I'm going to go through yeah. my list. And there's more me. than this, but yeah. Spotify, Apple, Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, Amazon, TuneIn, iHeart, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, all of those places are places where you can listen to the Drill Down podcast. And then all of them, you can subscribe or follow us to make sure you catch every show. And in all of them, you'll hear Corey's dog in the background. Also, the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We're gonna explain the business stories behind stocks and the move, Isaac. Webster, our executive producer, joins me, as does the dog I'm dog-sitting and my dog. I'm doing the show from home for a change instead of the studio in San Francisco and the ferry building. And, uh, yeah, a lot more canine energy here today. It's all good. Who let the dogs out? I let the dogs out today. Actually, you let the dogs in to your room. But no, Corey, they're out, but they're still barking at us. <laughs> Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Uh, we've got some really interesting ones today, and I want to start with Bumble. Bumble. Bumble shares trade under BMBL. Shares have fallen 69% in a year. Get it? Keep oh, that's it horrible. I'm keeping it's it clean. Horrible. It's, a, it's a family show. But shares have fallen 69% in a year. And shares have been steadily declining since debuting at 75 bucks a share back in 2021 last year. And they now trade at uh, $21. So yeah, so stock uh, gets a nice bump uh, after reporting earnings, um, but as you mentioned, uh, has had a, a significant decline since their IPO a year ago. Uh, they went public the week of Valentine's Day last year. Um, now this is not quite love in the time of cholera, but dating in the time of COVID, online dating in the time of COVID, was difficult. That was very clever, by the way. Did you think of that, or you read it somewhere? I did read Love in the Time of Cholera. By Gabriel uh, Garcia Marquez at Magical One of my Realism. favorite books, yeah. Great book. Mm -hmm. um, it's been on the top of my mind for the last few years, given the pandemic and everything. But, uh, you know, this company uh, still growing, but the revenue growth rate is worse than when they went, when they went public. Maybe a lot worse. Uh, this is a company that was growing revenues. You know, going into the IPO, it said, hey, our revenues are growing and the revenue growth rate is increasing from... 12% to 31% to 43%. Well, it's been decreasing pretty much every quarter since, although a slight uptick in year-over-year -year revenue growth with a quarter they just reported at 26% year-over-year revenue growth. But 
That's a lot less than what they went public with. So it's is it better than the, than the IPO? No, it's a lot worse, but it's better than it was last quarter. But the real number to watch here is ARPU. Huh? Well, ARPU. Excuse you. ARPU is uh, most companies use the average revenue per user, but ARPU is average revenue per paying user. Fewer than 10% of, of uh, Bumble users pay Bumble anything. Oh, they it's a free, free subscription Freemium thing? Premium kind of thing, right. But those who do pay are paying more, and uh, that number is kind of steadily increasing. So last uh, year ago, in the fourth quarter, our papu was $20.01. This quarter, it was $22.83. And that's you, primarily users of Bumble uh, uh, and uh, Badu, which is their business in Europe. Uh, the Arpapu uh, for Bumble is much higher. It's somewhere like 30 bucks. Um, the Badu numbers in Europe bring them down. But that's a 14% increase. Uh, and while that year-over-year uh, -year increase is down a little bit from the last two quarters, uh, it's still uh, maybe better than it was before. And that's seen as a, a positive sign. I guess the big question for these guys really is when is love in the time of COVID going to be over? Here's Bumble president Tariq Shaukat talking about the reaction, the not-so-quick reaction when lockdown orders go down, dating doesn't go up. Well, you don't see the, the quick action reaction that you would expect when a government lifts lockdown orders or when case loads go down below a certain level. It's not like a switch gets flipped. And so what we see on Badoo is that there's a lot of hesitance in the Badoo user. Um, and we do see that has increased during Omicron. If you look at the case rates in Western Europe, for example, they're still quite high. We don't really see that abating um, in the first half of Q2, or Q1, I'm sorry. Um, and, and we think it'll take more time for that to work its way through the system. I think in in Bumble, we haven't seen any negative impact on the user base, and we hear the pent-up demand when we speak to our users. But as Anu mentioned, we're not yet confident that we're seeing any signals that are going to be long-lived signals of this kind of pent-up demand being released. We remain you know, hopeful of that in the future, but we've all gotten the timing wrong on this a number of times, and we're not prepared to say when we think that'll happen at this point. So I think that's interesting on two fronts. Uh, one, obviously, that that people are kind of slow to get into the dating pool when the uh, when the masks come off. But I think it's also interesting. I wasn't prior to this uh, conference call really aware that Western Europe uh, Omicron and, and COVID is still surging. Um, I subsequently went back and looked at the numbers, and yeah, if you look at France right now, it looks like you know New York in January. I mean, it's the the COVID numbers are through the roof in Western Europe, and in the context of a war in Eastern Europe, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a scary time in, for Europe, I think, and it uh, maybe has helped solidify the NATO um, uh, countries and really just kind of feeling like there is an, uh, an existential crisis going on. I don't well, know. That was a very big tangent from Bumble to NATO, but hey, um, let's move on. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Treen Insurance, a company, a small insurer out of uh, Wyzetta, uh, Minnesota, right outside of the uh, the Twin Cities. 
Treen Insurance trades under TIG, T-I-G, and shares have dropped almost 80% over the past 12 months, going from 16 bucks a share to just over $3 in about two years. What's going yeah, on big, with Treen? Uh, a significant decline over the last year, but a huge decline this week when the stock went from 7 bucks to about three fifty. Um, uh, you know, really dramatic move. Um, the company reported earnings, and they recorded just a giant loss ratio, a significantly worsened loss ratio. Loss ratio is the, that number used by the insurance industry, and it just represents the ratio of losses that premiums earned. Now, in the conference call, they did a lot of interesting things, not least of which uh, discussion of the, how they're walking away from the workers' compensation business in California, which had been a big business for them. Um, they cited a bunch of reasons. They said their competitors are cutting rates big time for large accounts, and they don't want to compete with lower rates. Warren Buffett has long warned us that insurers willing to write policies in any environment for lower prices doesn't work out well in the long term, even though it can boost results in the short term. These guys say they're not going to play that game. They also said that the the they blame the legislature in California, these Minnesotans, for uh, uh, writing into a a law that as 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 these guys described it, uh, as, as Treen described it, uh, that the legislative action means that any agricultural worker who caught COVID, it was presumed they got it on the job and were therefore eligible for workman's comp. So they wanted to get out of that business for that reason, but that, that led to a lot more losses. And they said that the insurance department in California set uh, workers' comp rates below the level proposed by a state rating agency, all these for reasons to pull out of the California business. So not only were the losses in the California in California worse for this small Minnesota insurer, I say small, um, the market cap for this company has gone from about 400 million to, to about under 200 million in the last week. Um, not only has uh, uh, they walked away from this business that was causing a lot of losses, look, those loss ratios just got really bad. Now I wanna talk about that number, just it applies to all insurance companies, but Think of it this way. If, a, if an insurance company collects $100 in premiums and pays out $20 in claims, uh, its loss ratio would be about 20%. Geico, for example, last year had a 19% loss ratio. Well, for Trien, a year ago... So that's healthy. That's uh, that's, a hel- is that a healthy loss ratio? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, to okay. earn $80 for every 100 that you put into the business. Now, you've got expenses on top of that, and the expense ratio is another big part of um, uh, the business, but, uh, the, the loss ratio for Trian, maybe it's Trian, I don't know how they pronounce it, uh, was 27% a year ago. So not great, but not as good as Geico, but pretty good. It was 76% of the quarter they just reported. Oh, wow. So, uh, and their expenses were 24% on top of that. So, you know, it doesn't leave much wiggle room. It does not leave much for profits. <laughs> so you'd think, well, what are these guys going to do differently? And they had a lot of big losses in other programs besides California that they didn't identify. But they said that they went through and reviewed them carefully and they looked at how do we have these losses and these policies that were so good for us in the past. And they basically said, eh, it's going to be fine. They were unrepentant. No change in their strategy. Here is CEO or incoming CEO, current COO, Julie Barron. We don't expect to change our strategy at this point. I mean, obviously, we're all anytime, you know, it's time for a contract renewal. We'll see what our options are and, you know, look for whatever makes the most financial sense at the time and that we think is a good move. Um, 
right now, we don't have any plans to change anything. We feel like these are good programs. When we saw the large losses, we did a lot of due diligence, digging into the numbers, um, you know, reviewing underwriting guidelines, looking at the policies that generated these large claims, and, you know, and really work with our partners and our underwriters to make sure, you know, that there wasn't something underlying that was causing an issue. And we don't believe that there is. You know, these are some of our most profitable programs that we've had, uh, you know, for the last, you know, five, 10 years. And, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, this is insurance. Sometimes you have a bad year and we feel like that was our bad bad year. And um, we're looking forward to this year being, you know, a better year. Yeah, she said it. Sometimes you have a bad year and we feel like that was our bad year. Yeah, your stock went from 16 to 3. You're right. That was your bad year. All right. Let's see how they recover from this one. But I thought some interesting underlying trends reported by Trien um, during the last year and in this last quarter. I kind of want to take some of those phrases that she said and stitch them onto a pillow. Always there's, always, there's always time. I, here's what I suggest. Watch yeah. Yellowstone and stitch that shit into a pillow. Because... <laughs> There is there is there is a stupid line about every three minutes in that show that's worth a pillow and a laugh. I'm not calling what she's saying stupid, but I will say that um, I do, in a way, respect her stoicism and just got to move forward, one foot in front of the other. We'll see what happens. Godspeed. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Tidewater, another company we haven't talked about in the past. Tidewater, TW, TDW is Tidewater. TDW shares have gained 42% over the past 12 months, vastly overperforming the broader market. TDW shares started an upward trend back in December 2021 and have since doubled from 10 bucks back then to around 20 bucks now. Yeah, year to date up 76%. Yeah. Um, uh, hitting an all-time high this week a couple of times. Uh, three or four times. Uh, so uh, interesting, really, really interesting company. This is an oil and gas services business, but it's a particular type of oil and gas services. It's boats. It's marine support, transportation services. So literally ferrying workers on and off rigs, um, devices to help drill rigs or set up rigs or put rigs into position to drill offshore. Also working in wind farms now overseas or, or on the sea, I should say. Um, fascinating business that that uh, reported a quarter uh, in a very strange way overnight. So they kind of teed up the quarter. They didn't say exactly when they were going to release results. And then as they closed a merger and refinanced some debt and uh, changed a huge tax plan that they had that was suddenly turned against their favor and bought out a joint partner in Angola, they're like, okay, let's do it all overnight and we'll have the conference call in the morning. And so they had this conference call where they didn't have any questions, maybe because their investors weren't ready for the timing of the conference call, but just a fascinating business. So these guys own a lot of boats uh, and they've got um, uh, uh, offshore service uh, vehicles for their boats and they've got other boats, the giant boats that help build these uh, platforms, whether it's uh, platforms for... Um, uh, anchored platforms for wind farms, which are these things are just these off seas uh, over uh, or on the water wind farms have these um, uh, turbines that are just gigantic, so much larger than any of the ones you see on land 
there are further than the eye can see. They're also on the ocean floor in ways where they are anchored but not connected to the ground. Um, just incredible thing, devices with incredible complexity um, and changing the way the world gets power. But they are closing these mergers. They're changing these tax plans. They reported a super strong quarter. And as you mentioned, the stock uh, really performing. Uh, here is CEO Quentin Keene talking about what the company looks like after they have completed this acquisition, which they expect to close during this calendar year. After close, we'll have over 80 large PSVs and 11 200-ton-plus HTSs in the fleet. And yes, the combination will enhance our competitive position greatly in both West Africa and Asia-Pac. But in a market where customers are starting to pay full mobilizations to get the right vessels in the right locations for their projects, we believe we'll be in the enviable position of having not just the largest OSV fleet and a truly global footprint, but most importantly, the right types of vessels to leverage OSV rates globally. This won't happen overnight, although with $100 oil, it might move a bit quicker than anyone thought, but this combined fleet is not only best in class for the market, but the combination of two marquee OSV operators also creates a clear first choice supplier for our customers around the world. And I'm sorry, OSV is offshore supply vessel. So these are things that carry goods and supplies and workers and so on. Um, and these guys are just the uh, real dominant player in this business. Um, also interesting for them, they said the North Sea wasn't as rough as it has been in prior years. So when they normally don't see a lot of North Sea business, they saw a little bit during this quarter, uh, which is interesting in the context, once again, of what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, and uh, oil supply to Europe. All right, so one more fascinating story for you, and one at length. We're going to look at a company called Zero Fox. Uh, talk about, as we were just talking about with, uh, um, with Tidewater, you know, uh, Zero Fox is a company that is changing the fan belt whilst the engine runs, merging with another company, tackling some really big problems, all while doing a SPAC IPO. CEO James Foster Foster joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. As promised, Zero Fox CEO James Foster, who goes by the name Foster. That sounds like a remnant of high school when the, 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 the gym coach always called everybody by the last name. <laughs> more of uh, public service and federal government. In high school, but yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> uh, well, look, post-college, I started my career off at the Department of Defense. Uh -huh. And the story goes, uh, first time I got yelled at, somehow James just got dropped. And it what? was, Foster, you need to fix this. And, and I think I've been Foster ever since. So. I've been hopefully been fixing things, not breaking things ever since. You can call me Johnson for the duration of this interview, if you, if you prefer. Um, so Zero Fox is a a company that uh, emerging from a SPAC, which is really interesting. I couldn't help but think of, uh, um, you know, I've said it many times, but you can fix the fan belt whilst the engine runs, but it's not the easy way to do things. You guys are taking your company public, 
merging with another company and doing it in the form of a SPAC all at once. All at once. Um, I'm not right. so in, I'm not terribly interested in the taking the company public part, although I want to talk about it a little. But what is the company? What will the company be as it emerges from this, as it goes through this metamorphosis and then emerges from this cocoon uh, into a publicly traded company, Zero Fox? Yeah, great. So the uh, the goal here, the catalyst for us, is much less about merging with our with our SPAC partner LNF, which we found. Shout about them later. It was uh, it, the goal was to acquire IDX, right? And uh, we found that there was a supply and demand imbalance in the SPAC market uh, being created and accelerating early last year into the summer of last year. There are too many SPACs out there with not enough high quality companies working in interesting market sectors with real customers. I mean, I looked at all the presentations that people were talking about putting hotels on Mars and the projections seemed unbelievably lofty. Uh, we've been a business that's been around for nine years now. And uh, what did I see uh, something this week that over 50% of the companies that did SPAC IPOs did not reach their targets by the same year. <laughs> that the yeah. targets that they put into the SPAC were so unbelievable that they couldn't even hit them within the 12 months that they predicted them and sold stock yeah. based on those promises. I think that's an interesting stat, but I would bet you that uh, go pull down a hundred uh, pitch decks that gets into venture capital firms and run the same stat. I bet it's probably not too far off. Agreed. I mean, okay, well, now we're talking about SPACs, so let's do that. So um, <laughs> agreed, except that those companies aren't selling to regular investors and that there are different requirements that when, more, when normal through the normal IPO process, as messed up as that is, um, right. a company can't tell you what the revenues are going to be going forward because that because the, the SEC long ago deemed that to be too promotional. But with a SPAC, companies can say, hey, this is what we're going to do for the next year, five years. You can count on it. And of course, you can't count on it. Corey, I think you're spot on. I think I think that's the, the supply and demand I was talking about. You had a lot of these companies that were highly speculative with with very lofty, um, I'll call them ambitions, uh, you know, with their financial goals. And, um, and, and I think that they're, they're not achieving them. And so that imbalance created opportunities for good companies that had material revenue streams and that had realistic uh, projections. I think that's uh, that that identifies Xerofox to a to a T. So, what is your company again? What is it going to look like once you've completed this merger? What what is uh, what are the sort of? Because I, th I do think that you know, oh my God, I got to cover this stuff, and and yet it is hard for me to, to differentiate between one security company from the next. Sure, and yours is going to be very big. Ours is going to be very big. Uh, that's that's exactly right. I mean, on a combined basis, uh, we finished out last year over 150 million dollars in revenue. And so I think that's the first big difference between us and from what I've seen, most of the SPACs that have attempted to come to market. We have material revenue. Second is the quality of our customer base. I've got half of the Fortune 10 already as customers and over 6% of the global 2000 as customers today. And that's accelerating. And then third, it's the size of customer that I'm working with. And so not only do I have just under 2000 customers today, my six figure customers have been growing at a 50% CAGR or more for the last three years. So I think all of these are proof points that we've got a interesting business that's continuing to scale and going after a, a really uh, a really big market that's maturing alongside of us. I think, um, uh, it's, so let's talk about customers a little bit. Um, you guys have a phrase in your, in your uh, SEC file, your S4 filing, which is, a, which is similar to an S1 filing. 
Um, and, yeah, that, was, and, that was fun to write. Oh my God. It's like 700 <laughs> pages or something. Is uh, Sorry. It's 1,062 pages. I've got it up in front of me. It's over, it's over a thousand pages long. That's right. It was, it was, a, even for all those that I've read, this was a big one. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, um, you have a sentence in there that I've never seen before, which is, except for this one customer, we don't have a big customer concentration. I'm paraphrasing only slightly. That one customer, um, let's talk about that because you're acquiring a company that has a massive, one of the largest, according to your filings, one of the largest government security contracts ever. That's right. Tell me about That's that. That's right. It's with the uh, Office of um, Personnel and Management, OPM. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the organizations in the United States federal government, uh, fully disclosed. What, what occurred here is, uh, and it's, it, this is all again disclosed, the Chinese government attacked the United States government at some point over half a decade ago. And in 2015, US OPM released an RFP and they needed help. They needed help uh, understanding the scope of that attack helping uh, with response and breach response capabilities in particular. And then they needed digital protection. They needed world-class digital protection uh, as a part of that attack. And uh, IDX won that. And three years later, that contract uh, grew meaningfully in size. I think uh, as, the, as the time passed, uh, the, the US federal government realized that China was an adversary that's here to stay, uh, that the scope of what they thought the breach grew and the sophistication of the attack also uh, grew uh, through education and kind of research on, on our side of the house. And uh, that resulted in about a half a billion dollar upsell and order for OPM. That program well, started off at 330 million. Now it's up over a half billion or just about a half, half billion. Half a billion. It's huge. And, but the bona fides that come with that and the, the trade craft and the experience that come with that are, are meaningful. I mean, you now can stand up and say, hey, we've helped the U.S. government protect against attacks from China for over a half a decade, and they're happy. And uh, and the, the CPAR scores will attest to that. So Think I of that as the government report card system. Uh, and yet IDX was so dependent on that singular contract, I would imagine it was a, um, tough for them to want to do any kind of public offering or anything else because they really were beholden to that single customer. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think their their plans were were slightly different than ours. We have been partners for four years, and uh, maybe unlike some of the SPACs out there, uh, you know, we had come together. Geez, at this point, uh, early last year, and decided that it made sense for us to merge as organizations. It made sense for us to merge as organizations, create one unified platform, and be able to offer digital protection to organizations. Uh, and, and public sector clients around the world. And I think that was the real impetus and catalyst for what we're doing today. All right, so, you, so how did you identify this company as somebody you might want to um, acquire and, and how, how does that happen? And is going public sort of a necessary element of that? We, we've been an acquisitive company by definition now for, for about two years. Well, true, um, you've, 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 had a two, you've done two big acquisitions. I, I, I talked about changing the fan belt whilst the engine runs. And, in addition to acquiring the giant of IDX, you've acquired two other companies in the last 18 months or so. We had, we had two small strategic tuck-ins, one in 2020, one in 2021, last summer. And uh, uh, knock on wood, we'll have one here shortly with IDX. Um, and I, I think that's representative of maybe two things. One is our corporate culture and the way that we think about that growth. We look for partners that we know uh, and in general um, have uh, 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 solid brands and respected customers in the industry. 
you know, I look at this and say, is this somebody that's respected throughout the industry? They have great human capital talent and do they have the right kind of tech vision that would make a lot of sense for us. There's a lot of other check boxes we look for. And I would say between you and I, Corey, we, uh, we kiss a lot of frogs. There's a lot of things that are out there in the market right now. And most of them are just not ideal situations. IDX is, is a great company. They've got great leadership, great sustainability. They've been around since 2003. And we had the privilege and luxury of knowing them for four years as a customer and a partner. And so we were very comfortable with their vision and, uh, and had the opportunity to see them execute for multiple years before we agreed on this merger. So when you look at other companies that do acquisitions of technology, there's certainly some famous bad examples of it. But who do you admire in terms of their ability to do it well? Microsoft's doing an excellent job at their strategy. Yeah, I mean, an excellent job. And they, they are visionary in the types of companies they're looking at and the acquisitions they're making. I think in general, they're probably not getting enough press for how they've turned themselves around. They were an operating system company with, with enterprise productivity software that had not been put into the cloud. And they've turned themselves now into a, a very good next generation company and set themselves up for the next 20 years. And, uh, most people don't talk about that. Most people are still talking about the Googles and the Apples of the world and, and Amazon and Microsoft's right there along with them. And I think it's really set themselves up well. So. Couldn't agree more. I was having the same conversation with my girlfriend in the car yesterday. She was, she was not interested, but I was just saying what a great job Satya Nadella has done. Yeah. And I, th I throw, uh, you know, Oracle's M and A process is, is famous for just being fast. If you go to them with an offer, they look at it and they get through it and they give you an answer quickly. And, and Cisco's done a great job of folding businesses in, to grow that, what they've done for a very long time. And I, I just think it's, you're right. I think the companies that do it well don't get noticed because you don't notice how well they've done it. That's exactly right. I mean, the other ones that I would add to that list, you've got some of the biggest PE shops in the world out there now that if you stack them up side by side with some of the biggest software companies that are publicly traded, they look similar in size, whether that's a, a Vista or Toma. I mean, those guys have playbooks and, and Toma, making, yeah, problem, yeah, yeah, making those acquisitions platforms and then putting tuckins underneath of them they have operationalized their playbooks on this is how we do this this is the kind of targets we look at and this is what our integration studies but are like. those real companies i don't want to go too far off on a tangent but are those i mean i, I look at those and think those are um uh, debt laden um roll-ups of companies that couldn't make it on their own that they're waiting <laughs> to dump in the public markets that will surely collapse three years later Look, because uh, you're, uh, you're out there selling products and you can see we are out there selling products. That's right. And we have good customers. And um, I, look, I think that there are some really good companies that are owned by those guys. And then I think there are other strategies that are probably what would we say? They're probably value strategies as opposed to growth <laughs> strategies. Right. Value so, for the investors. That's right. Right. There's, there's value a PE the value center. strategy and then there's a PE growth strategy as well. So I just probably get some of both. So let's get to the markets you bring to, uh, to market. Um, the the things that you sell, your your capabilities are are at least according to your your documents, you know, significantly um, better than they were with all these mergers. What what is it that you sell, and how is it differentiated from more, what the competition is? Well, I'll quote you on that. They are significantly better. Um, we uh, we are we are a leader in external cybersecurity. And so concisely what that means is we worry about the types of threats and attacks that are beyond your traditional firewalls and beyond your perimeter. I started my career off on the government side of the house in the late 90s. And for the first 10 years of my career, roughly speaking, everybody was really worried about insider threats, right? 
sticking USBs in your laptops, taking out company data, emailing it to your personal account, you know, maybe downloading and sending things to people that you shouldn't have either purposefully or even by accident. And now that's exactly right. No one's worried about that anymore. The fear of the entire world, and it couldn't be more relevant, unfortunately, given what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia, is they're worried about the types of attacks that come from maybe halfway around the world that have either financial or now destructive incentive. And um, and those external threats, those external attacks, that's the definition of external cybersecurity. And, and we do a very good job of protecting our customers against those types of external attacks. How much of that, you know, there was conversations about that. There have been conversations with that with the White House uh, in the last week a lot about Colonial Pipeline as an example of a critical U.S. asset um, victim of a, a year ago, a victim of a cyber attack that had really no government interaction um, because they just they, their their security systems weren't as uh, up to. And speaking of private equity ownership, it was it, it had a, it had a unique trust structure in its ownership, and it just one of the places they cut costs was cybersecurity um, to the, the the detriment of anyone buying gasoline on the East Coast for a while and trying to heat their home. Um, how much of that is going into companies and saying, hey, it's it's time to get rid of Windows 95 and maybe you need to run the latest update as opposed to constructing new walls around the systems? I think the mindset for, for CEOs and CFOs around cybersecurity has to change. If you look at it today and, and you are satisfied with what I call a bolt-on security and compliance offering and it's not ingrained in everything that you do, then it's going to always seem expensive and always seem like an overhead expense that's uh, on top of what a project could cost. If you consider it just the cost of doing business and change your mindset and, and think about how this could give you a competitive long-term advantage, then, then it's not expensive. And I'll tell you the stats over the last 10 years, and this was in our public pitch deck, if you just look over the last five years, the number of breaches going up in this industry and around the world is off the charts. I mean, they are rapidly growing and uh, last year set records as well to where the number of breaches uh, and, and records released was, was over 50 billion. I mean, this is 50 billion records getting released in a, in a, in a single calendar year. It's just, it's just unheard of. I mean, it's a multiple of the number of people in the world if you think about those records. And so <clears throat> I, think it's a, um, I think the world is in a place where it's going to start changing. And you mentioned it, it started changing really recently. This past Saturday will be one of these milestones in the world that we'll remember 10 years from now. The Ukrainian government and their director of IT and digital transformation went online to Twitter and Telegram and asked the world for help. Basically enlisted the world's cyber armies and or think of them as mercenaries to help them and to target Russian assets and to help bolster their defenses. This kind of orchestration has never been done in the world before at the scale on the cyber front. And so since Saturday, it's now Thursday here, since Saturday, um, the end of February, there's been a, 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 an all out cyber war happening around the world in open forum. That's a first it, for us. Yeah, it's super interesting uh, uh, that that's a, um, what do they call it, a vector for uh, or, or surface for attacks in in in, uh, in defense, they call it a surface. I took me to that's right. No, no reference to Microsoft, but but that <laughs> that cyber attacks and and you know one wonders as you look at at, at the this war as it evolves towards attacks on on undefended civilians or barely defended civilians. 
that that also has a, a, a mirror, you know, that makes for, for a good cable news video, but cyber attacks don't and yet may have uh, also devastating effects. They have devastating effects and it's going to get worse. Um, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but um, there's, there's a new type of attack that is now gaining prominence. It's called destructive malware. And in general, the reason this hasn't been something that's been around uh, or in vogue here in the last 20 years is it in general can destroy what it touches. So if it hits your laptop or your servers, it can wipe out all the data, it can destroy it and make it so it's inoperable. And uh, in the past, that's not been really an attack type of choice by the attackers of the world because they didn't make any money for that. If I just right. knock out your server, so what? I don't get any money. So ransomware has been very very, uh, you know, in vogue the last handful of years, because I lock up your computer, then I charge you $30,000 to get access to it again. And if it's a really important server and really important computer, you'll pay that to get it back. And there's no other way around it in general. And with destructive malware, I think you'll start seeing this as a tool of trade by governments uh, when they want to go after their attacker. And it's, you know, the analogy that's being used right now is it's like a bomb for digital systems. You blow them up and you destroy them and they're inoperable and the time to fix it, it no longer is $30,000 and a week's worth of work. It could be millions of dollars and years worth of effort to potentially bring things back online and build them anew. We haven't seen that kind of destruction yet. We, we see evidence of it being used right now in Ukraine. And uh, if that hits the, the, the Western world or the, you know, the connected Internet world, uh, the, the cost of cybersecurity is going to go through the roof. Well, I think we saw the first of it all the way back in 2008 when Russia invaded, you know, um, South Ossetia um, and, and Georgia. Uh, yeah. It was preceded by a cyber attack that destroyed uh, uh, cyber infrastructure and just took down phones and took down connections with the outside world and took down powers and, and utilities. Um, to And it was what was interesting to me about that was that, that Russia employed um, uh, hackers in places where they, they basically let hackers run rampant with the promise that they would help out when there was a war. Uh, and we see that again with Ukraine. That's exactly, that's exactly right. The apparatus that Russia has in particular is very different than the United States, uh, you know, Western Europe, or even China for that matter, where they've used a decentralized approach uh, between the, the way that they can create offensive capabilities. They have these Cyber criminal groups that are loosely affiliated with the Russian government can be tapped by the Russian government, either formally or informally, to go after a target. And uh, and sometimes they'll they'll provide, let's say, information or guidance on a target that say, hey, it's okay to go after the United States banking infrastructure. Don't hit the top twenty banks, but any kind of mid market bank is is fair game. And hit them with things that make you money. So ransomware would be you know, an app opportunity to get in and, and kind of pull from those banks. That is absolutely uh, one of those types of guidance tactics. And there's the informal route would be just turning a blind eye to it. And the formal route is they do have capabilities to communicate to these groups and provide them, you know, dossier type of targets. And uh, indeed, we, very different we, than how we do this in the United States. And we saw that in the election uh, of, you know, when President Trump first got elected, the help that he got from Russians, uh, Russian-backed uh, agencies, whether it was actual, you know, KGB or KGB-controlled, or, or you know, the, sorry, the, the current model of KGB, but also um, uh, freelancers. That, that's um, right. Encouraged to interfere with the U.S. election. 
U.S. doesn't have this, right? The U.S. has uh, capabilities. We've set up something called U.S. Cybercom. Think of this as our army uh, capability for cyber warfare. It's a uh, branch of our military now and a branch of the government. And uh, you should think of our capability as a centralized capability that looks like the military apparatus we've set up over the last couple hundred years. Um, outside of that, there are other unique capabilities we have as a, as a government to, to, to collect intelligence and, uh, and conduct operations capabilities, but they're all in general centralized and government owned. Decentralized tends to win. Interesting. Um, well, I hope, that, the same. Uh, I hope that Zero Fox uh, can make a lot of money on this, at least. Looks like you are already. Uh, I, I, we, we, are, we are doing well. I think uh, the market is growing. And it's one of these unfortunate pillows that we lay our head on each night is um, when the market and the world goes bad with cybersecurity and attacks are up and uh, volatility is high, uh, our phone rings. And this has been a really tough few years. People took advantage of COVID uh, to, to create digital and cyber opportunities on the, on the maliciousness side of the house. And that meant uh, really nice and interesting things for Zero Fox. Cyber war just started. Um, and we just started off our fiscal year. So we think this is going to unfortunately set up for us up for a very, very busy year and uh, a very turbulent year in the, ahead for the world. James Foster, Foster, the CEO of Zero Fox. Thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate it. It was fun. Cheers. All right, coming up next on the drill down, we're going to have the drill down bite that one number that tells us a whole lot, tells us a little bit more about Zero Fox when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And ask your smart speaker to play the drill down every week. We try to serve some business news and business stories behind stocks on the move. You can hear that on your smart speaker. For example, with an Amazon smart speaker, you can just say, hey, Alexa, play the drill down podcast. And you'll hear our latest show. And uh, let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. So Zero Fox uh, and the combined company have a lot of customers, as we mentioned, Defense Department, a lot of big businesses, Uber, Snap, Salesforce, Moody's, uh, you know, schools, healthcare, Costco, whatever that is, Major League Baseball, which will be with us again for another year. Yay. The bargaining agreement. Um, you could care less. I thought it was really interesting to see. So <laughs> a lot of these companies talk about how many customers they have or how much of the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 10. In this case, there is no such thing as a Fortune 10, but they claim to have seven of the Fortune 10. There isn't a Fortune Good for 10. them. There's a what Fortune a nice 500. Claim. They just picked the first 10 in the book in the edition. In any case, uh, customers, however, that spend a lot of money are what really matters for any business, this business included. And for yeah. this business, customers spending over $100,000 each, they have 130 of them. That number, and that number is your drill down bite, the percentage growth of customers are 100,000 or more in spending is 50% on average over the last three years. The growth is 50%. That's amazing. Yes, 50 percent in big customers yeah. over the last three years. That's a lot of money. So yeah, a lot of money, uh, a lot of growth uh, for this company. Um, 
coming from those big customers or growing those customers. And we know once $100,000 customers in the door, they start spending a lot more. Um, and that's certainly what these guys hope. And they've shown the ability to grow this, as, like I said, over the last few years, um, a positive sign for them, if, if not a negative sign for the rest of us fearing cyber attack. Yeah. You know, another thing about those big ticket customers are that once they get integrated into your, whatever your system is, it doesn't matter the industry, they're less likely, it's good. It's going to take a lot more to get them to go to a different competitor because they're going to be integrated into your system. Agreed. Right. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson, Isaac Webster, our executive producer, Ben Wilson, is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.